You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. This is our last sermon in the series, um, and so we are we are wrapping it all up, right? And what have we what have we been doing? Uh, we've essentially been looking at these major milestones in the Bible where God makes covenant promises that initiate relationship between Him and His people. And what we've tried to um, bring to the fore for us um, is a view of the Bible that says, one, the Bible is a continuous and cohesive story, and that, two, that God's covenant promises, these milestones, build upon one another and find their ultimate and final fulfillment in the relationship that we now have established in the new covenant through Christ's blood. So each covenant tells us a little bit about who God is and a little bit about what God wants um, for His people and for the world. Um, And so this morning we get to the, the final wave of God's grace. That was kind of the illustration that we used when we talked about this series, that the covenants are like standing at the shore and watching the tide roll in, how it's, it just happens wave after wave after wave, and the tide comes in, the tide comes up. Well, this is uh, the tidal wave uh, of God's grace uh, being unleashed upon the world. And so here's what's happened very briefly thus far, right? God says to Adam, you're going to be my people, right? We know that Adam fails to live up to the covenant relationship with God, right? The only thing that he had been asked not to do was to not take of the tree and eat it and to be obedient, to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. That was it. And yet Adam fails. And in that, right, God in Genesis 3.15 promises us that even though Adam's sin shatters and breaks and mars relationship between God and man, that he will one day restore it finally and fully. That the serpent, right, the serpent may have gotten in a bite, but his head is going to be crushed. That that this war, this battle, this this, um, mess will be made right, and that God will be the one who does it, right? So then we go to Noah. He tells Noah, look, uh, everything's broken, I've promised that I'm going to fix it, but that reality is not here yet. And so I'm going to preserve the earth until my redemption will be accomplished, right? God says to Adam, I'll redeem my people. To Noah, I'm going to preserve the earth until my redemption is accomplished. He comes to Moses and says, I'm sorry, he comes to Abraham and says, you're going to be my specific people, right? I'm going to turn this little family into a great nation that will then bless all the nations. Oh, and by the way, Moses, this is how you are a blessing to the nations. Here's the law, right? You want to bless the nations? Maybe don't murder them, right? Um, Then we get to David, and God says to David, look, my chosen one is the one who will rule my nation. I'm going to, I'm, I'm sending a king. This is who will rule the nation, ensuring that it is a blessing to all other nations. And now we arrive at Jesus, and essentially what the Bible is going to tell us this morning is that all of these covenant promises, all of these promises of restored relationship with God, all of these promises about a redeemed people, all of these promises about nations that are blessed because of a great king, right? All of those things fulfilled in me, right? So that's the context that we have for Jeremiah chapter 31, right? And Liz already read it for us, so I'm just going to talk us through kind of the, 
the content of what we saw there, right? The content of what we saw there. So in verse 1, it says, Behold, the days that are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now we have to be reminded, right, that what was one nation has been split into two nations, Israel and Judah, Israel in the north, ten tribes, Judah in the south, two tribes, right? So civil war, a, a, a divided nation. And God says, I'm going to make a covenant with both of them, right? He's going to reunify his people. In spite of the fact, in spite of the fact that really the Old Testament up until this point is nothing but a chronicle of Israel's failure time and time again to uphold the covenant blessings and the covenant obligations that God has given to them time and time again through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Now, so what is this covenant going to look like, right? What are, the, what are the blessings? What makes this covenant new? What makes it special? Well, this is what it says. God himself says that it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So here's, here's what's going to happen. One, the nation's going to be reunified in this new covenant. Two, God's grace in the law will be internalized, right? So what they couldn't accomplish outside of the body, God says, look, I'm going to put my own law in their hearts, right? The grace of God will be internalized. God, this is just a symbol or a a clear sign that God is not after moral conformity apart from our hearts being captivated by Him, right? This is like, I, I, I thought of this immediately in light of my, my daughter who's about to turn a year old and is figuring out what it means when daddy says no and to do something anyway. Obedience devoid of love for me and Olivia is not a win. It's not. Yes, I want Olivia to obey me, but I also want her to love me and I want us to have a relationship in which love flows both ways. And some of my love for her is expressed in that requirement of obedience, right? But again, God says, look, even though you've been disobedient, I will write my laws on their hearts. So that's the second thing. Third thing, right? Personal relationship with God is going to be reestablished, right? He says, I shall be their God and they shall be my people, right? He doesn't say, I shall be their God, right? and they shall be a people, he says they're going to be my people. That's very personal language, right? To you, Nicole is a wife. To me, Nicole is my wife, right? If you don't know my wife, her her name is Nicole. (laughs) That's who I'm talking about. All right, so that's the third thing. The fourth thing is this. There will be no distinction in terms of class when it comes to the knowledge of God, right? That no one will be more able to know God, right? This is what it says. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me, get this, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
So what does he mean by that, right? He's talking about a, a, a technical kind of teaching from least, least to greatest, right? Uh, the people in Jeremiah are living still in the sacrificial system, and they're still living with priests who mediate the relationship between God and man, right? So there's, there's God and there's man, and there's the priest in the middle who offers sacrifices on their behalf, who teaches and who guards, right? That's, that's their role within this people, to mediate the relationship between God and man. And what God is saying is that, look, you're not going to need a priest to know how to relate to me. You're just all going to know me. It's going to be utterly clear who I am from the least to the greatest. And then, finally, this is it. There will be complete forgiveness, right? The last part of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So this is the new covenant, right? This is the new covenant that Jeremiah promises, right? The nation will be reunited Grace will be internalized, right? The law of God will be internalized, written on their hearts, personal relationship reestablished for no distinction in class when it comes to the understanding or knowledge or relationship with God, and then complete and utter forgiveness of sins. Sounds like a good deal to me. Now, if you've been around for this series, hopefully you, you noticed something. In that every week up until now, we've talked about two things, right? We've talked about the blessings of the covenant, and we've talked about the obligations of the covenant, right? Or the promises of the covenant and the conditions of the covenant, if you want to use different words. There's something missing in this one, isn't there? In that there's no condition. There's no conditions, where in every other covenant up until this point has had conditions, this one doesn't have any. And really, when it comes to this covenant, there's only one promise that's new. Right? All of the other covenants have echoes of these, other, of these blessings, of these blessings of restored personal relationship, of God ensuring our holiness, of God walking with us in that way, right? What's the new promise? The only new promise, the only thing that's new in all of this is that there would, there would be a breakdown of distinction in class when it comes to the knowledge of God. That there will be a new way of mediating, no longer through the priest, no longer through a specialized people, no longer through the priests of a certain nation, right? But that everyone would be able to know God. So... This morning, uh, we, we have this written essentially five to six hundred years before Jesus is even born, right? And now after Jesus, we're going to see um, how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of these promises, how he makes these promises real for us. So, and to do that, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 8, and uh, what I really wanted to do was just read chapters 8 through 10 straight and then just walk off the stage. Um, but I realize that that might not be the most helpful. Um, but you should definitely read it in its entirety when you get home today if you have the opportunity. Uh, but we're going to do a, an overview, right? 
an overview of Hebrews chapters 8 through 10 to see how Christ administers this new covenant. So chapter 8, right, tells us that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. And I'm going to jump around, so uh, bear with me. I will try to walk you from, from each verse uh, through each jump. So starting in chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So this is where um, the author of, of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, right, uh, where, where the covenant blessings were once mediated through a priest and it happened uh, with, regular, with regularity now, right, it happens once for all through Jesus, and Jesus uh, doesn't dwell in the earthly tent that we made for God's presence. He actually dwells in God's presence at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Skip down, verse 6, it says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So again, right, the author of the book of Hebrews is setting up this distinction between the old covenant and the new one. And he says the promises of the new covenant are better. And what are those promises? Well, in verses 8 through 12 of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews quotes directly from where? Jeremiah 31. Literally the exact words that we just read are quoted by the author of the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is the high priest of this new covenant. And in the old covenant where the high priest would enter into the holy place once a year to bring sacrifice for the sins of the people, Jesus is the better high priest because he enters into the actual holy place of God's presence and he dwells there in perpetuity. And the covenant is better because it has better promises. Move to chapter 9, right? And in chapter 9, here's what happens, right? It gives us all of these different reg regulations for the tabernacle, this place where God's presence would dwell on earth with His people. It tells us about, it essentially just rehashes, like, hey, remember all of this stuff that you had to do in order to make atonement for your sins? Do you remember all that? Well, in verse 10, he tells us what the purpose of that was. In verse 10, he says that these were just regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation, that it was a placeholder in history, that it was a shadow until the time would come, until the time would come when the better high priest, the better covenant was revealed. Now start reading in verse 11 of chapter 9. It says this, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. So what is it telling us, right? Where the high priest used to go in and sacrifice an offering, our new high priest, Jesus, is the offering. That he's made restitution for sin once for all for our redemption by his blood. And then he goes on to say this, 
Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So our new high priest doesn't just offer a sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, and now he dwells in God's presence perpetually. And get this, it says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, in verse 24, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That Christ is mediating the new covenant. That Christ is in the very presence of God on our behalf for you and me. He's actively right now mediating the new covenant promises on our behalf. And then what does it say in verse 28? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So what did Jeremiah tell us, right? Jeremiah told us that the law of God would be written on our hearts, that that grace would be internalized, that personal relationship would be made available with God, not through a priest, but directly, right? And that complete forgiveness would be made available to us. And what the author of the book of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is the person who has secured that. That because He dwells in the presence of God and because He is God, we have relationship with God by that very simple fact. And that we have complete forgiveness before God, that we can actually enter into the presence of God because Christ's perfect blood was absolute and total payment for our sins. So He is just to forgive us of all of them and to remember them no more because we are in Christ. Skip to chapter 10 of Hebrews. And we're just going to start in verse 12 and it's just a couple of verses here. This is what it says. Again, giving us some clarity as to what Jesus' sacrifice means for us. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is where we praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So why don't we make offerings to God anymore? 
it, according to the, to the ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament, because the one sacrifice, once for all, is Jesus. It is by Him and through Him that we are perfected once for all. And the Holy Spirit now, this morning, through His Word, proclaimed and sung together and prayed together, is testifying to us that reality. Is testifying to us that reality that we are under a new covenant, that the one sacrifice, once for all, is where we find life, hope, joy, abundance. And that's why we'll celebrate communion in just a minute. To be reminded, to be reminded what the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus have now accomplished for us. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us that Jesus' sacrifice is the new covenant by which we are perfected through Jesus, that His grace is internalized, that relationship with God is possible, that complete forgiveness is extended, and that the knowledge of Him is now available to all, apart from a priest, apart from a mediator, because Jesus, God Himself, is the mediator. So what now? I'll read in verse 19. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that we could, listen, right? In the Old Testament, the priests, when they would enter the holiest of holies, that, that part of the tabernacle that was only reserved for them, they were the only ones that were allowed in there, and they were only allowed in there once a year. You know what they would do? They would tie a rope around their legs, because if they messed anything up, if they got anything wrong, they were entering into the holiness and the presence of God, and it would, in that moment, kill them. And so rather than having other people run in there and try to get them and have the same fate fall upon them, they said, we're just going to tie a rope around your leg. Do you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying to us now? That because of Jesus, we, we, we not only enter the holy places, but we enter them with what? With confidence. That we don't walk in there with like, oh, let me tie a rope just in case. But that we walk in there and we go, I belong here, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's why he says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah is fulfilled in Jesus. And because of that, we can do three main things that the book of Hebrews would encourage us to do. One, we can live confident in Christ. We can live confident that He is sufficient. So all of these other things that we feel like we need to justify who we are, whether it's a, 
a degree or a certain amount of money in a bank account or a certain car that we drive or a certain wife, size, family, whatever it might be, those are not things worthy of our confidence. We've been given something that is utterly more great, utterly more wonderful, utterly more valuable than any of that. And what that allows us to do is is to do essentially the same thing that Paul did and look at all that we have and say, you know what? All of my social equity, all of my relational equity, all of my economic equity, all of it, I consider it rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Right? We can live confidently in that. We can live confidently knowing that, the, that these promises that God has for His people, that all of the other promises that are in the New Testament about the inheritance of the saints that we receive by virtue of being attached to Christ, the, this idea that there's a home in heaven for us and that a kingdom is coming in which Jesus reigns and rules victoriously over, that we can trust all of those things, that we really and truly can live like sojourners. As 1 Peter tells us, right? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in this world, do not think to satisfy yourselves here. You can live confidently in Christ and in the work of Christ that it is sufficient for us. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We must hold fast to this confession. Look, if at any point in time any of this becomes negotiable, then, then that no longer becomes steadfast ground to stand on. But look, we can hold fast to this confession because it is indeed the only place that we will find the hope that we long for. And look, hope is not just like some wishy-washy feeling of like, man, I really hope uh, Johnny asked me out on a date, right? And maybe that'll happen. Hope, right? Hope is belief in the things yet unseen. Hope is knowing that he who promised is faithful, and trusting in what it is that He said He would do, knowing that what God decrees comes to pass. And then the third thing we can do to ensure that we're walking in confidence and that we're holding steadfastly to this hope is we can gather together. Right? What does it say? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So look, you want to know why the church gathers together. You want to know why Sunday's a big deal, even though uh, probably most weekends the music is mediocre and the preaching goes long and uh, the communion bread is from last week, so it doesn't taste quite as fresh and this, that, and the other, right? In spite of all of that, In spite of all of that, what's happening here is we're gathering together, stirring one another up to love. To love who? To love God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, right? To engage the whole self in devotion to God together. That we get to do, like this isn't some lone ranger spiritual journey that you're going to find God on the top of Mount Everest. You're going to find God here among the people of God. Stirring one another up to love and to what? And to good deeds and to walking in the way that God has called us to walk. In walking in proper response for the glorious 
good news of the gospel. That what was once like up in the air in terms of can I enter into God's presence and make it out alive is no longer up in the air. We arrive in God's presence because Jesus has made the sacrifice once and for all. And it doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are. And it doesn't matter what your heritage is. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. It's the only proper response. So as we conclude the the series uh, this morning, I, I think if there's nothing else that you got from this sermon series, uh, I, I hope that we would leave with two things. One, we should clearly see that the Bible is not about us. It's just not. It's not a manual for your success. It's not your best life now. It's not the power of me, right? The the Bible is about Jesus. From page one to the appendix, it's about Jesus. It's telling us about Jesus. It's unfolding a story about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will do. And the way that we can trust in what He will do coming to pass is because everything that He's done thus far, He has done. The Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus is the greater Adam. Adam's sin was universally imputed under Adam's covenant headship. Adam rebelled against God and sin and death entered the world. Now, Christ's righteousness is particularly imputed under Christ's covenant headship, where sin came into the world through one man. Now, forgiveness, redemption of sins has come into the world through one man. We now have a covenant head who's defeated sin and death. Christ is the greater Noah, who on the cross was overcome by a flood of wrath, and now he serves as the ark by which those who are in him are spared from certain death. Jesus is the greater Abraham, who left his father's household to wander the desert with us. And through his faith and obedience has brought a multitude into God's household. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads his people out of bondage and defeats their enemies. He delivers the law from a mountain, but he also fulfills the law and frees us to obey it. Jesus is the greater David, an unlikely hero who defeated a giant on behalf of God's people and now serves as a shepherd, priest, and king to them. Bible is all about Jesus. And here's the second thing that I would have you remember, if if nothing else from the rest of the series. God is faithful. Plain and simple, God is faithful. Why should we trust what God says, right? There are wonderfully encouraging things in the Bible. There are wonderfully difficult things in the Bible. Why should we trust God in both of them? Because He's faithful. If He says it's for our good, it's for our good, even if it's painful. Even if it's not necessarily what we would want to walk through or to or confess or make known or sacrifice or put aside or remove. We can trust that it's good because God is faithful. Because in Genesis chapter 3.15, God promised that one would come and would defeat the serpent once for all. And Jesus is that man. 
Jesus is that man born of woman. Fully man and yet gloriously and fully God, the exact imprint of his nature. Sent for us. The war is over. The war between the enmity between God and people, the enmity between uh, the, the, the servants of the serpent and God, it's over. The Bible tells us that now, because of Jesus, we are led in a continual victory procession. That no matter where we're walking, like, like that no matter what looks, life looks like for you right now, that you're being led in a victorious march over Satan, over sin, and over death because of what Jesus has done. And this grace, and this grace of God in the gospel is available without distinction. It's available to all right here, right now, offered in Jesus, poured out by His Spirit. And so, my hope and my prayer this morning um, is that we would just find rest in that place and that we would celebrate accordingly. That right now, that all the little busy things that are happening in your soul, all those little distractions, maybe your phone's going off, maybe whatever, right? That all of that can just take a seat for a moment. And recognize the sheer confidence, the sheer glory, the sheer wonder that we've been invited to partake in through the work of Jesus. And that no matter how many text messages you respond to, and no matter how many work things you get done, and no matter how this, that, and the other, no matter what you've got planned for the rest of the day, the reality that we're sitting in right now is that through Jesus' broken body and blood, we are redeemed into this new covenant, this new kingdom in which Jesus reigns and rules, and He does so not against us, but on our behalf. And that's good news this morning. Let's pray.